Either talking about the problem of consciousness is hard, or I'm just underpowered to talk about it well. It seems like the deeper a topic of conversation, the harder it is to get your point across, to make yourself understood. The very words we use to label concepts and ideas seem to fall apart. Wittgenstein said that if a lion could talk, we would not understand him. Well, I'm no lion, but am I any better understood? The intuitions that underlie some of the foundations of my thinking are not necessarily yours. I've got to convince the world to see them through description, when to me they are simply there to be seen. The description is secondary and awfully, often woefully inadequate to the task. To what extent are the foundations of our reason grounded in accidents of history, language, and education? When I read Aristotle, he grounds his arguments in logic, which is essentially mathematics. So the manner of thinking, which we call Western, is grounded in logic, the logic of the ancient Greek sort. The Greeks also gave us geometry. I find that geometric thinking comes naturally to me. Is this natural, as in true of human beings generally? Or is it cultural, a product of our kind of education? And what about language? To what degree do the idiosyncrasies of English, say, influence the capacity and mode of thinking about things? Obviously, it is pretty well irrelevant when it comes to concrete nouns and common verbs. This is a dog, that is a bull. The dog drinks from the bull. I would expect just about every language in the world to be able to convey such things straightforwardly. But we concern ourselves here with deeper ideas and terminologies which are metaphorical at best. The mind. The psyche. Conscious being, the soul, the spirit, the self, each conveys something a little extra, which is to say that they are not perfect synonyms of one another. This shouldn't be much of a difficulty when translating between English and German or French. Often there are more or less direct and similar sounding translations. When you learn to speak another language, you begin to find that your frame of mind shifts to take on a somewhat different character, like an altered persona. Something like this occurs when you come from a rural area, as I do, and you spend some time back home. There's something a bit more relaxed and folksy about the way you find yourself speaking and thinking. This is sometimes noticed in well-educated black Americans who might adopt a somewhat different posture when visiting the old neighborhood, homogeneously black. I'm here to tell you that I know what this is like, at least to some degree, and it happens to us too. And something of this kind happens, too, when I'm spending a lot of time reading the prose of a particular author and thinker. For example, if I'm reading a lot of William James, my internal dialogue begins to take on something of a Jamesian aesthetic. Now, what shall we do with the rough and imperfect translation between, say, Mandarin in English, or Hindi in English, or even more exotic correspondences? I heard a conversation between John McWhorter and Steven Pinker on YouTube. There was a third person there as a go-between, asking each of them to address various topics. McWhorter and Pinker are undoubtedly two of the great linguists of our time, and they agree that the way we think and view the world is not especially dependent upon which language one speaks. So they disagree with the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Sapir-Whorf says that the particular language one speaks influences the way a person thinks about reality. In this conversation, Steven Pinker says, quote, I came to language from cognitive science, from cognitive psychology. I immediately thought that the radical version of the linguistic determinism hypothesis, something called the Whorf-Sapir hypothesis, after the two linguists who made it famous, in its strong form this did not make sense. 
It's that the mind just could not work with a particular language as its internal medium of communication. That is, the operating system of the mind just can't be English for a number of reasons. One of them is, just think about your knowledge of the world. I hope that when you come out of this evening, you will have learned a couple of things. If I were to challenge you to come up with a single verbatim sentence that any of the three of us have uttered, there would be no way you would remember the exact wording. But you would remember the gist. A powerful phenomenon of human memory is that memory for gist, for content, for meaning, far exceeds memory for form. That's one thing that says that the language of thought, so to speak, can't be English or French or Japanese and so on. Second is, this is how I came to it. I was interested in how children acquire their first language to begin with. You are born into the world and you have no idea whether your community is going to be speaking Japanese or English or Yiddish. You've got to figure out how the language works as a child, and we have reason to believe that this is not just pure cryptography. Unquote. Pinker goes on to explain that children cannot learn language from the language itself outside of an embedded context. This seems obvious enough, right? If you just listen to tapes of people talking in a foreign language without a translation, you wouldn't just start to understand what the voices were saying. Language acquisition, he says, consists of matching the signal with the cognitive appraisal of the world. Moreover, he says, without some ability to represent the world before you even have a language, you wouldn't be able to learn the language in the first place, so language cannot be the medium of thought. He goes on, quote, finally, if you look at the way distinctions words carry, they are way too coarse to actually represent the way we think intelligently. An example from computer science is that when we hear simple sentences like, Ralph is an elephant, Ralph has tusks, Ralph lives in Africa, we understand that perfectly well. You also know that Ralph's tusks belong to Ralph alone. They're not the same tusks that other elephants have, but the Africa that Ralph lives in is the same Africa that the other elephants live in. This and hundreds of other logical distinctions are not actually carried in words, but they're part of the effortless understanding of the meaning behind sentences. One of the reasons that computers still can't understand very well is that we haven't duplicated all the subtle conceptual semantic distinctions that the mind is capable of and implemented them in software. Language is really the tip of the iceberg of the distinctions that we make conceptually. Unquote. McWhorter replies, quote, Despite that language could not possibly be the channeler of thought that we think, once there is language, there are certain effects that can happen, and psychologists have shown this, and it's important in evaluating Worfianism to acknowledge those experiments. So, for example, this is one of my favorites. It's by Daniel Casasanto, who is a psychologist. He's now at Cornell. In English, we say a long time, and in Greek, you would say a lot of time. It turns out that if you show a line moving from left to right, and you ask somebody to time when the line is going to hit the right, and then you show a cube filling up, as if it was filling up with water and you ask them when it's going to fill up. If somebody speaks English, then they're better at predicting when that line is going to hit than when this volume is going to fill up because we talk about a long time instead of a lot of time. Greek talks about a lot of time and so they're better at predicting when the cube is, is going to fill up. Now that's not cultural. It must have something to do with the fact that in one language you say a long time and in another language you say a lot of time. Nobody would think of it, but that's the way it works. And it works when you throw other languages into the hopper. It's a highly predictable effect. So that shows that your language can influence thought, but is that a worldview? What kind of worldview is it? 
that you can predict when on a screen, when you're tied into some booth as an undergraduate doing a very artificial experiment for money, that you can figure out when this thing is going to hit the, the other side. And so these things are clear. They are there. Lyra Borodisky is very good at creating these experiments. She's at UC San Diego right now, and she has a TED Talk, and she's very good at it. Those things are real, but the question is whether those things create a worldview, unquote. McWhorter goes on to say that he disagrees with the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, although this was not originally his area of expertise, based in part upon his studies of Creole languages. He says, quote, I study Creole languages, which are brand new languages which form from what was not language. Pigeons are what happens when, for example, slaves are brought into a community and have to learn a language very quickly. They're adults. Adults don't learn languages well. You come up with about 500 words and you're just kind of shifting them around to communicate. No human being can live with that for the rest of their lives, and so from the pigeon, you build up a creole. But the, if the language is that new and it's built up from something so elementary relatively recently, it's not going to be as busy as Russian. It's not going to be like Japanese. It's not going to have tones like Chinese. And so these languages that are relatively telegraphic and it occurred to me as I studied these languages that based on this Worfian idea that if your language is jangling with all of those things that are clearly due to chance, but they're channeling your thought, then it means that somebody in Jamaica or somebody in Haiti must not be having as many thoughts. And I, and I thought that doesn't make sense to me. And so I started looking at Worfian views and what they imply, not to defend Creoles, because it occurred to me that it was just linguistically incoherent, unquote. Thus far, I've been reflecting on language and the translation of concepts. But what about entirely different ways of thinking among those brought up in vastly different cultures? John McWhorter pointed out that the psychological experiments contrasting between predicting when a bar will travel from left to right versus a block filling up to the top are not about culture, but really artifacts of language. Nevertheless, different cultures do exist and might introduce actually different ways of thinking. The differences might not manifest importantly in day-to-day -day affairs, but at bottom, when we're exploring the deepest ideas about, say, metaphysics and phenomenology, it seems like there might be some important fundamental intuitions that could be distinct from culture to culture. For example, I've noticed that we, here in the modern developed world, tend to take a lot of things for granted, given the education and technology to which we've been exposed, concerning what is true and the values we share. It helps to go back and read the best ancient writings from profoundly intelligent thinkers and discover that there are assumptions they have that we do not share with them and have fallen out of favor. Is the average smart person today really more rational and competent than Plato or Augustine? Not by a long shot. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. Copernicus and Galileo and Isaac Newton and Francis Bacon are all implicit within our worldviews we have a decided advantage. Suppose an equally advanced society to ours had in their place a different pantheon of giants upon the shoulders of which they stand. I recently encountered and read an essay by Alan Watts in a short collection called This Is It. In the essay, Watts begins by establishing a distinction between intelligence and instinct. He suggests that anxiety is a human problem, and especially a modern human problem, because of our use of intelligence to decide our actions. He writes, quote, The type of intelligence that we have cultivated brings anxiety for at least three principal reasons. 
The first is that intelligent thinking works by dividing the world of experience into separate facts and events, simple enough for conscious attention to focus upon them one at a time. But there are innumerable ways of dividing and selecting for attention the facts and events, the data required for any prediction or decision, and thus when the moment comes for a choice there is always the rankling doubt that important data may have been overlooked. There is therefore no complete assurance that an important decision is right. Thus, the ever-frustrated effort to gain complete assurance by reviewing the data becomes the special anxiety which we call a sense of responsibility. The second is that the sense of responsibility goes hand-in-hand with a heightened sense of being an independent individual, a source of action which cannot depend upon a simple instinct or spontaneity for doing the appropriate thing. The intelligent man therefore feels independent of or cut off from the rest of nature, and in trying ever frustratedly to figure nature out with sufficient accuracy, he requires a feeling of fear and hostility toward everything outside his own will and its full control. The third is that conscious attention reviews facts in series, even though they may be happening all together at once. Thinking about them in series and making predictions and decisions about the future course of the series gives the intelligent man a vivid awareness of time. It appears to him as a basic life process which he must work against. He knows that he must calculate rapidly to forestall it, though reviewing nature analytically piece by piece is not conducive to speed. Furthermore, knowledge of the future brings about emotional reactions to future events before they happen, and thus anxiety, because, for example, one may get sick or will eventually die, and apparently this does not trouble the creatures who act by instinct. Now, action by intelligence is in a special and high degree characteristic of Western civilization, though other civilizations have developed it highly enough to experience the same problem of chronic anxiety. But Western civilization has acquired by far the greatest measure of skill in controlling the course of events by organized intelligence. Yet this appears to have intensified rather than abated our anxiety. For to the extent that we have analyzed the natural world and the human world more thoroughly, To that extent, it appears to us to be more complicated. The scope of our detailed information about the world is so vast that every individual, every responsible source of action, finds it too great to master, without depending on the collaboration of others who are, however, beyond his control. Collaboration requires faith, but faith is an instinctual attitude. Speaking quite strictly, it is not intelligent to trust what you have not analyzed. It looks, then, as if there is a conflict, contradiction, and thus anxiety in the very nature of intelligence. As an efficient, though slow and laborious means of conscious control, it builds up a body of information too complex to be grasped by its own method of reviewing events and facts, one after another in series. Machines or other people must be trusted to assist, but how much must one know, how many facts must one review before deciding to accept a collaborator? Intelligence, which is in some sense systematic doubt, cannot proceed very far without also having to embrace its polar opposite, instinctual faith. So long as intelligence and faith seem mutually exclusive, this is an impossible contradiction, for to the degree that intelligence is systematic doubt, it cannot trust itself. This is why lack of self-confidence is the peculiar neurosis of civilized man." Alan Watts goes on to say that the dilemma between instinct and intelligence, which the Western mind considers to be incommensurable, leads many people to become anti-intellectual, to throw their hands up in the air, and, for some, to take an interest in Eastern modes of thinking, which are less dualistic. To my thinking, it's as if we force ourselves to choose between a soul and a mind. 
between a nihilistic materialism and a romantic faithfulness in meaning. The East perhaps offers a means to rescue, as it were, the mind and the soul. Watts writes, quote, Hinduism and Buddhism have recognized that man's path is a razor's edge and that there is no real escape from the great conflicts of feeling and action. Yet unlike most forms of Christianity, they do envision not an escape, but a resolution of the conflict within this present life. Their answer is, moreover, deceptively close to the anything-goes attitude of instinctual romanticism. At least this is true of the more profound and inward forms of their doctrine, which are just those having so much appeal to the West. For they do indeed teach that good and evil, pleasure and pain, life and death are mutually interdependent, and that there is a Tao, a way of nature or a balance of nature, from which we never actually deviate, however wrongly we may act from a limited point of view. Yet their grasp of the mutuality of opposites is infinitely more thorough than that of our romanticist with his exclusive valuation of precipitate and uncalculated action. The difficult and subtle point which the romanticist misses and which, on the other extreme, the strict intellectual rationalist cannot understand at all, is that if all action and existence is in accord with the undeviating dower way of nature, no special means or methods are required to bring this accord into being. In the language of Zen, such means are legs on a snake, or irrelevancies, and these include precisely the choice of impulsive rather than reflective intelligent action. The Romanticist advertises his ignorance of the Tao in the very act of trying to be spontaneous, and of preferring the so-called natural and instinctual to the artificial and intelligent. To overcome the conflict between intelligence and instinct, it is first necessary to understand, or at least imagine, a point of view, or perhaps a state of mind, which is experiential rather than intellectual, a kind of sensation rather than a set of ideas. When put into words, this sensation is always paradoxical, but in experience, it is not paradoxical at all. Everyone who has felt it always felt it the same way, that it is totally simple and clear. However, I think the same is true of all our sensations. There seems to be no paradox in describing our more ordinary sensations because everyone has had them, and the listener always knows what you mean. There is no problem in understanding me when I say, I see light because of the sun. But it is also true that the sun is light because I see. Because in other words, light is a relationship between the eyes and the sun, and the description of relationships always tends to sound paradoxical. When the earth collides with a meteor, we can say either that the meteor ran into the earth, or that the earth ran into the meteor. Whichever we say depends upon an arbitrary frame of reference, and so both statements are true, even though apparently contradictory. In the same way, it is only apparently contradictory to describe a sensation in which it seems that whatever I do freely and intelligently is at the same time completely determined, and vice versa. It seems that absolutely everything both inside and outside me is happening by itself, yet at the same time that I myself am doing all of it, that my separate individually is simply a f individuality is simply a function, something being done by everything which is not me, yet at the same time, everything which is not me is a function of my separate individuality. Ordinarily, we can see the truth of these seemingly, seemingly paradoxical feelings if we take them separately, if we look at one without looking simultaneously at the other. This is why, for example, the arguments for free will and determinism are equally cogent, though seemingly contradictory. The same goes for all the great debates of Western philosophy, the realists against the nominalists, the idealists against the materialists, and so on. 
We get into conflicts and debates about these problems because our language and our way of thinking are somewhat clumsy in their grasp of relationship. In other words, because it is much easier for us to see opposites as mutually exclusive than as mutually interdependent, unquote. Watts goes on here to describe the sensation that he alluded to before, a realization that does not lend itself well to linguistic description and which is foreign especially to Western thinking. He writes, quote, The sensation I am trying to describe is the experience of things and events in relationship, as distinct from the partial experience of things and events in separation. I have sometimes said that if we could translate the modern Western theory of relativity into experience, we should have what the Chinese and the Indians call the absolute, as when they say that everything which happens is the Tao, or that all things are of one suchness. What they mean is that all things are in relation. And thus, that considered simply by itself, no thing, no event has any reality. There seem to be relatively few people, even in the civilizations of Asia, for whom relationship is an actual sensation over and above a mere idea. The anxiety which comes about through the conflict of intelligence with instinct, of man with the conscious will, with nature both in and around him, does not seem to me to have any solution unless we can actually feel relationship unless it is a matter of clear sensation, that as determined beings we are free, and that as free beings we are determined. For if we can feel this way, it will not appear that the use of will and intelligence is, a con is at conflict with our natural environment and endowment." Unquote. Is the Western mind grounded in Greek logic and mathematics to the degree that it is, incapable of elegantly handling deep paradoxical truths? And if it is, does this mean we struggle unnecessarily to deal with concepts such as unity and duality, relationship and interdependence, due to an accident of our historical legacy? I'm trying to see how this might be the case. Consider, for example, simple mathematics. How would you explain negative numbers to members of a tribe which have no such concepts? Or what would be the cognitive consequences of having no concept of the quantity zero, or the idea of nothing? These simple but plausible examples would in all likelihood completely alter the way members of a culture think. Nouns which pick out abstract relational concepts can be quite tricky. What is time? What is consciousness? What is evil? What is the self? Notice that each of these concepts has been subjected by some philosopher or school of thought to doubt in their very existence. The doubt depends, at least in part, on the fact that these nouns do not refer to concrete things like dogs and bulls. With consciousness, this means that those by whom it is claimed to be undeniably real, like me, it becomes necessary to classify what we even mean by the word real. Something can be true of the universe, and thus real in it, even though that something could not exist in isolation. It thus cannot be reduced out or distilled from everything else in the universe. Force is a relationship between mass and acceleration, thus dependent upon space and time. What is potential energy? What is gravity? These are relational, but definitely real. There we go. In English, we are free to call concepts things, but gravity and time and consciousness are not things in the sense of objects. Are we entangled in nonsensical thinking by the linguistic structures we utilize to think? Ask stupid questions, get stupid answers. Does explaining consciousness require us to ask questions outside the scope of our framework for questioning? 
Perhaps everything we seek to explain requires that we leave some constant undefined. Like Heisenberg uncertainty, momentum is necessarily unknown when we discover velocity, and vice versa. Likewise, suppose that it is impossible to discover what subjectivity is in objective terms. Only by taking subjectivity as undefined can we understand anything of objectivity. According to my theory, consciousness is an interdependent phenomenon. The emergence occurs in accordance with a system as well as its intrinsic subsystems. Both are required, not one plus the other, but one with the other, or one in terms of the other, like two sides of the coin, like two hands clapping. It's an uphill battle to explain such things, but I'll keep trying.